Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode two. 153. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we're back in the saddle again. You were just in Texas. I was in Texas. You were at a woke event. I was. It was very woke. Yeah, I was. uh, uh, was, You're so woke, you're an insomniac. (laughs) Well, it was. um, There have been five cohorts of the Shalom Hartman, AJC, Christian Leadership Initiative, group scholars, pastors, Fellows, and so uh, every other year they have a retreat, and so this was one of them. And I was, uh, I helped moderate a panel discussion on racism, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and theological and theoretical responses. But it was good. I was in Dallas uh, at uh, at on the campus of SMU. I walked past the George W. Bush Library. It's right near where my hotel That's is. Nice. Yeah, I didn't go in, but it looked nice. And uh, yeah, it was good. Good folks. Very, a great, interesting group of thinkers and activists and people making a difference in the world. And people who don't know how to make a difference in the world, which is what we all kind of feel right now. So Absolutely. I, uh, I, I feel, yeah, I think many people feel it. Yeah, I do want to talk, though. I do want to talk um, a future episode on racism, I, I think, and uh, also inspired by the Why Theory podcast. We would be against racism. <laughs> yeah, but the idea, you know, one of the things that's interesting, this kind of ties into this podcast, but, you know, we talk about what, you know, we mentioned something about are we more emotionally driven than cognitively driven. What's interesting, though, the reptilian brain or the emotional brain creates ideology vis-a-vis rationality. So there's a sense where racism is a logical uh you know, an act of racial hate may be a reptilian emotional response, but racism is a well-thought-out ideology. That- this is where Aristotle, I think, is wrong. We're not rational animals. We're rationalizing animals. Right. So, that, like, it's not that it's not that ideology isn't, like, isn't using our sort of frontal lobes. It's that it, it's in service of the kind of reptilian stuff rather than often— condemning it or curbing it or enlightening it you know that that we that we are such rationalizers that we kind of know what we want and where our predilections lie and then we kind of use our our cognitive powers to sort of legitimate it well what why don't well i think you can have people who are rational animals but i think the ancients realized that's so hard that you have to go out into a cell in the desert yeah. and work on it for 40 years and then you don't quite get it. Yeah, so. yeah. And very often the things that we're ra- most rational about just don't matter to us. Like where we're able to, we're, we're actually able yeah, to like change autom- our mind. It's just sort of something it's, that's it's adiaphora. Yeah. It's the automated brain, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's adiaphora that we can. So this article I tweeted out this week, Facts Don't Change People's Minds. Here's what does, written by Ozan Varel, who is a academic and I think a scientist, but he's basically talking about how facts don't, you know, change people's mind. You know, John Adams, as John Adams puts it, he says, facts are stubborn things, but our minds are even more stubborn. And that, you know, confirmation bias is so powerful that modern sort of behavioral science and social science tells us that we sort of just filter out inconvenient truths 
uh, and overvalue evidence that confirms our biases. So we kind of basically, we, you know, so often our reflective powers are used to, again, confirm what we already think and to sort of prove people wrong they're outside our tribe or something. And he's sort of saying that this is part of the problem. And he also thinks, I'm assuming he's a Democrat from the tone of the article, but he thinks that Democrats and are are falling into this trap that they're not, by, you're not going to get people to say, you know, by, by telling them they're, they were so wrong for voting for Donald Trump, you're not going to get them to not vote for him again, usually. Like, it's, those kinds of things are, are generally not very effective. Right. Yeah, people have to have space to come to those conclusions themselves. And he goes on to talk about ways to help people do that. Or ways right, like saying, hey, I totally understand why you would have voted for him in 2016. You're frustrated. You're fed up. Da, da, da. But given these changing facts on the ground, you know, could there? Yeah, like saying, like giving their mind, he says, giving their mind an out. Like like saying. Well, that, and, and let's face it, like first is somebody we both respect a lot, Dan Carlin. You know, he's been advocating to, to blow up the system for a while. You yeah. Know? And then he said, I'm terrified how it happened, you know. But I think you're right. I think there's a sense where. Um, and, you know, and let's take, for instance, what do you, you know, I mean, uh, we both responded to a, a, a Facebook post about uh, our good friend Jeffries, uh, who uh, equated never Trumpers to the Nazi Germans. Yeah, the German Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That guy is that that's beyond the I mean, I couldn't believe that. By the way, I, I in Dallas, I talked somebody who knows him says that for the most part, he's never had an original thought. What he does is periodically says these things when he needs to raise money for something. Yeah, okay. All right. I, I could believe that. Yeah, that makes... It doesn't strike me as an original or creative mind. <laughs> no, but that's that the... That he he really is more of a... Uh, he where, he where the wind is going in his tribe, that's really what feeds him. So, anyway, which is it. Well, I think it also should... Certainly, you know, I mean... Um, you know, let's talk about our particular realm, the kind of angry Christian diatraps that go back and forth about, you know, a lot of it around Trump. Now, you know, certainly now we're in the middle of a national crisis. Are you OK? I want to I want to check in with the you. emergency. Are you all right? Yeah. I, I, dude, I came home and there were two Guatemalan families in my house. <laughs> just They came over in the caravan and they just, you know, they were, uh, you know, that's a, they're just in everybody's homes. These, yeah. Well, John's getting better. So as soon as he gets better, we're going to, we're going to dig the moat. I like that. It's a, it's a, it's an emergency. We're going to get, we're going to take it. We're going to go, you know, they're going to sue us. They're going to take it to the ninth <laughs> district. We're going to get a terrible ruling. We're going to get another terrible ruling. <laughs> <laughs> but no, again, the, you know, the rhetoric remains, remains pretty high. And, and the great gift of uh, Facebook allows us to actually throw those stones at each other on a regular basis. Yeah. You could, you would never, it's the thing about social media is all the things that like mitigate you being a jerk like having to look at the person's reactions and, and, and having to see their f hurt feelings or their anger or the fact that they might deck you or something like that. Like all these things that sort of curb your terrible impulses, they, none of that exists. So you <laughs> just do it. You know, you just throw, you just throw Motov, rhetorical Motov cocktails all over the place. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, it's amazing what our devices, you know, fool us. For instance, that maybe I'm the richest man in the world and, I can get away with sending pictures of my new self. <laughs> By the way, do you know when Amazon paid in taxes this year? No. Zero. They got $100 million back. They doubled their profits. They, it went from $5.6 to like $11 billion. They paid zero taxes. Oh, there we go. 
That's crazy. Yeah. And I think people who jumped on the critique of them and, you know, the whole tax, they got tax breaks to, to build the thing. In was it there was going to be Brooklyn or was it in Queens? I thought it, yeah, it was like Long Island City, which is in is that in Queens? Yeah, it's in Queens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that it, it's interesting though because that really hurt that neighborhood. I mean, like if they they it, that, that's a bummer that they didn't do that for that neighborhood because it's like yeah, I mean, it's, but it's not just being stupid left wing. It's a more complicated issue than that. Yeah, I mean, what what I mean, you're giving a company that didn't pay any taxes. Major tax incentives. I mean, and that's, you can say that's the tax. The, the problem with that is the tax code, not necessarily Amazon. Sure. Yeah, Amazon will take advantage of, it being a good business, you take advantage of whatever advantages you're given. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and this is, you know, like cities. You, you, your your for, accountants would be fired if they didn't do yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. So this idea, so what are other ways that you can try to engage um, in constructive ways uh, in terms of, in the realm of ideas, because I, I do see part of what I think is unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> I, I said one time, I miss the days in theological circles where you were allowed to call each other names. I think there's something good about that. I think it's like my lawyer friends. You can call each other names in court and then go have a drink with each other. I think there, and there's still some academic circles. You, can do that. <laughs> you would like to go back to rhetorical. Uh, yes. cocktail. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Right? I like it because there's a so, like Calvin would call people like rascals and gesticulating monkeys. Yeah. Says, but yeah. then, but then you, but then, there's, but there was a kind of a disconnect from it. In, in other words, it was on the realm of the argumentative. And it was even, you know, when you make an ad hominem attack, you know you're using a rhetorical device. And everybody knew you were using a rhetorical device. It wasn't necessarily, uh, you actually necessarily didn't think that. Now, maybe Luther did think that about Erasmus. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that, you know, it, one of the things that he says in this article that I think is excellent, I mean, just uh, very, very good advice, is he says that, to remember that your beliefs are not you. And he says, you know, in my early years in academia, I would tend to get defensive when someone challenged one of my arguments during a presentation. My heart rate would skyrocket. I would tense up and my answer would reflect the disdain with which I viewed the antagonistic question and the questioner. I know I'm not alone here. We all tend to identify with our beliefs and arguments. This is my business. This is my article. This is my idea. And th- but he says, you know, when your beliefs are entwined with your, I- with your identity, they get even harder to hold loosely, because he talks about that that a, a really good place to be is having strong convictions held loosely, and and, and that's the hard. It, most people have strong convictions or beliefs held very tightly, or loose convictions held loosely. <laughs> but to, to to have to be passionate and yet be open, and and that is a hard thing. And I think that that is so is so important what he's saying because so often when our ideas do identity work it's a bad thing right it's it's because it, then it's it, again it, it gets into the tribalism that it's not about uh it, the truth it's about our tribe and about our us winning and 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 you know let's own the libs and drink the drink the the cask of liberal tears or vice versa you know like you just kind of you know liberals who tune into msnbc every day to see something bad that happened to the Trump administration, you know, just take glory in it. I mean, these sorts of things like that, that when you, when you idolize, when you make idols of idea, you, you almost have to demonize right at the same time. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You know, one of the things I, I saw that was really interesting that you say that there was one there was a panel discussion talking about different institutional responses to some of what's going on, and uh, actually, one woman who uh, was a former student of mine—I didn't even know if she was part of this group—gave a presentation. A little bit was talking about something they were doing up in New York in response to some of the different hate groups. And so, one of the things part of their group put together—you know, hate doesn't live here anymore—those signs. And what I thought was really interesting. Uh, one of the people in the group who had been part of her cohort. And the whole thing, you actually you know, studied together for ten, nine or ten days, two different years. You were in Israel together. And so um, they, these are two people who had, who had done this, who had been in Israel uh, two different years together. And he was very confrontive. He talked about, are you not in some levels doing the same thing with your signs? You're, you know, are, is, is shaming the hate signs – you know, are you actually doing the marginalization to the people? Are you really doing it? And it was a pretty heated back and forth, but it never was personal. It was really on the realm of the ideas. And I think it was a very thoughtful discussion, something you don't usually hear about that. And what struck me, they were both safe enough with each other to be confrontational because there was a, there was a, they disagreed about it, but there was a relationship there. And because I think in part of the relationship and there was mutual respect, uh, they were allowed to have a pr- pretty rigorous back and forth about it, which I thought was was something you don't always see. Well, yeah, and I think that's. I mean, he talks about that in this piece that you know you we need to get out of our echo chambers because the echo chambers reinforce it. So it gets hard to when you have people that you know about and respect as people and think they're people of goodwill that you disagree with. It gets much harder to demonize them, and it also gets harder to sort of caricature their ideas and things like that, that that you still may disagree with it, but it, you know, it, it, it allows you to take your interlocutor more seriously when you remember that they're a person, but so often the echo chamber kind of reality, just, it's not only the confirmation bias, but it, it makes the people that we disagree with subhuman because we really forget that they are just as human as we do have just all the sort of good, bad qualities, foibles, frailties that we do and, and, and are, you know, trying to make sense of things with all of their emotional biases, just like we are. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's what's at work 
in racism. It's its work in anti-Semitism or any of the isms by, you know, somehow you dehumanize or less than the other. Yeah, it's interesting. The guys in the Y Theory podcast were talking about how you, the moment someone's not allowed to be a contra- contradiction, that's when you sort of are, you've other, othered them or marginalized them. So it's like, they were talking about how like, how the, the argument, uh, you know, some of the rhetoric with someone like Donald Trump is, you know, the Mexicans are, uh, you know, like they're, they're shiftless and criminal and yet they're so industrious or they're shiftless and lazy and they're going to, su- you know, suck off the system. And yet they're so industrious, they're going to take all our jobs. And they're saying the Kantian approach would be to sort of say, well, it's got to be one or the other. And say, no, the Hegelian thing would be, no, no, no. Yeah, they are both industrious and shiftless, just like all of us. We're all sh- lazy some days and very diligent others. Like, but the moment you will only allow someone, or it's like feminists always complain about the Madonna whore complex. You're either the Virgin Mary or you're a sexual, you know, siren. You, you can't be just normal. So anytime you don't allow someone to be a contradiction, you're marginalizing them. Right. I mean, it's interesting. We just, we just got done doing the electionary podcast, but, you know, judges, you will be judged. You know, in other words, do you want the same standard? Don't to, judge, it's Judge Janine judges. <laughs> <laughs> She's yeah. a lovely person. Yeah, you know, you and I also talk a lot about I mean, and the, the idea of holding on to ideas loosely. Uh, just the, in some levels, over-optimism about what we can know. Uh, it, you know, we live in this hyper-skeptical hyper age, but also, also uh, you know, an age of certainty when it comes to what, I, what the individual thinks. I, I, and the things like the, the, like the Kahneman and, and, and the other guy, the, the, in the thinking fast and slow stuff, like those guys, those Israeli economists, all, psychologists, all their research, like that they would do these tests where like, they would take, you know, professors and do these tests. They would spin a number, like a Wheel of Fortune kind of thing, and then they would ask them how many countries they think are in Africa. And the, the higher the number they spun on the wheel, the higher the number they would guess. And these are just like, like the, I mean, they just point out all day right. how many stupid things, like how many things that are, are, are either irrational or non-rational that make up like, so like this idea that, that this is like so much of their criticism of a lot of economic theories that assume consumption it, it goes rationally and like it just doesn't you know, like the people and that's all of us i mean all of us are you know these are they're, these are not ideologically biased kind of research uh examples i mean they they they, they apply across the boards so, i mean that like reminding ourselves of of that i think yeah it, it keeps us humble yeah you know I, I think you know this has been going on for a while somewhere along the line instead of making a better argument it became who can yell the loudest and 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 now who can claim to be the most righteous? And I think certainly as Christian thinkers, we should be suspicious of every every one of those points. Well, yeah, and this is like we've talked about this before. This is Jonathan Haidt's point on the righteous mind that when we're rhetorically like we're on cable news and stuff, you're not trying to be persuasive. You're to the other side. You're trying to persuade your side that you're on the tribe. So like you basically, the more you irritate the hell out of the other side, you've done your job because now it shows that you're part of our tribe. So it's sort of. You know, it, it's 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 those conversations. The very purpose of them is the opposite of persuasion. It's irritation. I mean, do you think where, is there where can there be, can there be cooperation, uh, cross party cooperation? I mean, you know, it's one of the ironies of George W. Bush. Uh, he was one of the most conciliatory governors in history of Texas. The Democrats worked with him, liked him. Matter of fact, the most powerful Democrat in the state of Texas supported him when he ran for his second term. He was known to try, you know, to work across the aisle. 
Um, you can say, you know, a lot of different things maybe prevented that from happening, 9-11, the people that were in his ears. Um, and certainly Barack Obama, you know, was really woefully unsuccessful trying to work across party lines. Uh, is it, you know, that we don't have those bridge builders anymore? I mean, uh, you know, look what happened. Look at Lindsley, Lindsley, I'm sorry. I think I purposely messed up his name. What Lindsey Graham has become. I oh, mean, overnight. Overnight. And maybe that's all. He's always been a chameleon. But, you know, uh, you know, there are some people who I you think. You take away John McCain, that guy's soul just evaporates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They probably, like in the movie. You know, uh, when John McCain dies, they'll have to have a second character, different character play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's not as many moderates. And also some of that is like through things like gerrymandering, through other self-sorting. I mean, even if you like solve, even if you got rid of gerrymandering, which would be great. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually a crusader for this. I mean, it's very interesting. Like, but even still, like you still have so much self-sorting where people that are conservative or tending to want to live generally not in more rural areas people that are liberal you know like one of the things david french wrote a piece in national he said you know if if democrats want to have more influence in the country they got to all move out of brooklyn like you got to, you know but but that is you know the self so some of this stuff there's like these and then you have cable news and the internet and so all these it's like kind of one silo echo chamber factor upon another and all of that seems to con- contribute to a whole that's like, wow, how do you get out of this? Well, I think two miles. One of the things that's interesting, we talked about, we both were impressed with Doug Paget's series with the oh, yeah, Trump supporter. Yeah. yeah, he did a very good job model it. I think I've talked about this before. I was uh, one of the first, maybe the first time I was in Israel. I can't remember, but uh, we were in, we went to old Joppa, uh, uh, Tel Aviv is north of Joppa and old Joppa, the old city. And there was a, a rabbi who was an activist rabbi and a Arab. I don't know if he's an Israeli Arab or uh, a citizen of, uh, of the West Bank, but he was a psychologist. And we walked through Joppa and they told different stories that happened during 1948 and different things. And what would happen would be one of them would talk and give that's the, the you got the Israeli say he, the rabbi gave the Israeli perspective of what happened there historically, and the Palestinian psychologist just stood in silence, listening and looking at him. When the Israeli speaker stopped, and the Palestinian gave the narrative of what their version of what happened there was, and the Israeli gave him his full attention. There was no debate. There was no counterpoint and counter. It was that they represented two parallel, albeit different narratives, of parallel events, of, same, of the same historical events, and they allowed them both to sit there together. Um, but they, they, they were there together as well as two individuals. And I think to me that was a powerful thing. You know, the trouble that say, we mentioned earlier, the, the Methodists, we went through with the Presbyterians. The trouble is... Um, it's basically a power thing. You know, we may say it's an ideological thing, but once it comes down to the voting, it's a power thing. And whoever has the majority of votes hardly is ever willing to be fully gracious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's... Whether that's it's right. in government or in church. And I think that's kind of, that's un, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, uh, I think there's more to be said about power, but uh, one of the things is that uh, you do have the power of your position, 
You have, if you would, in some level, a right to your position, whatever that means. That would be right. I put that in brackets. But um, I think you have a Christian obligation. You have a human obligation. It's not even Christian. You have a human obligation uh, to try to be able to hear uh, to hear what your neighbor is saying. Yeah, and it's interesting because and Harry Frankfurt talks about in this book on the truth how basically part of like learning that there's a world outside of us is part of our human maturation. And then part of why we respect the truth and facts is because it, it kind of enables us to live in the world as a responsible subject. And that and the, the distortions of the truth are actually these power plays that are dehumanizing. And so why the truth, he thinks, is not an expendable thing if we want to know and be known and, and we want to sort of be real subjects, like have I that relation? So yeah, I think that that's, you know, th- this kind of stuff is at the heart of what it means to be human. You know, one of the things that was interesting, I was rereading uh, some Abraham special this morning, and uh, blessed memory. And one of the things he said that, you know, the prophets were invested in the people they were talking to. Yeah. To be prophetic, there's a difference between being a social critic and a prophet, because a prophet is someone who actually cares about the people and is invested in and identifies with the very people he may be raining down judgment upon. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, be uh, be humble. Well, the other thing too, if you don't, you're not a prophet if you don't love and care for the people that you're railing against. Yeah, and that's isn't that like isn't that so often the the way we discourse in, in society through social media and stuff? You're further and further from the people you're dialing with. People do become just positions. Well, I think I've said this before. Uh, uh, my oldest son and I were reminiscing about his high school days and. Uh, a lot of I knew I knew I probably knew every kid in his high school class because there had been some tragedies and a lot of the kids were involved in our church. And he he said to me, we were, we were it was great one of those moments because he's a dad now he's a great dad. But he said sometimes I wished you know my friends loved you they adored you and sometimes I wish I wish that you would have been because <laughs> I wish I'd have been them because you know. They just seemed. They just seemed to get. They always got the nice, nice you. And, and I go, but I loved you more. Yeah. This is this thing I want. This Frankfurt thing I was talking about. This is so well said. He says. Um. He talks about how we learn our powers and vulnerabilities and things from limitation. Right. We delay our own boundaries and where we end and the world begins. He says thus our recognition and understanding of our own identity arises out of and depends integrally on appreciation of a reality that is definitively independent of ourselves. In other words, it arises out of, it depends on our recognition that there are facts and truths over which we cannot hope to exercise direct or immediate control. If there were no such facts or truths, if the world invariably and unresistingly became whatever we might like or wish it to be, we would be unable to distinguish ourselves from what is other than ourselves, and we would have no sense of what in particular we ourselves are. It is only through our recognition of a world stubbornly, of a world of stubbornly independent reality, fact and truth that we come both to recognize ourselves as beings distinct from others and to articulate the specific nature of our own identities. How then can we fail to take the importance of factuality and of reality seriously? How can we fail to care about the truth? We cannot. It's, you know, it was funny. When that reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Hell and the Great Divorce. It's, it, there, you know, you can't, it gets to the point where you can't go visit people from. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, time, right. Because no one get along. And so the distances are too great. They, yeah. build, they, they can build whatever they want to of their own making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, 
Let's try not to be bad. Yeah, it's interesting. Let's that, try not to build hell. Huh? Yeah, that that <laughs> phrase in that article too that that passionate beliefs held loosely. I mean that so, somehow that if we can have the grace to indwell that that we get closer to the truth generally. Yeah, I think you know the first article of our creed is you know God's God and we're not. Yeah, 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 we believe. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless.